0: Well, happy Cinco de Mayo. You're like, I don't know what to say, you know. I was expecting some three amigos, you know, maybe look up here or something like that. Um, But uh, we are celebrating Cinco de Mayo today as we do across uh, America and Mexico as well. But this is a day in Cinco de Mayo that we stop to honor the Mexican uh, culture and heritage. And it's a day that's celebrated um, because of a victory that was won. The uh, Mexico-French War was going on in 1862. The Mexican militia won a battle at the Battle of Puebla. Uh, And it is a a holiday that we celebrate probably more as Americans than the Mexican culture does because it's really a small day. It's not really a national day where banks are closed and it's not like a Memorial Day or a Labor Day in the Mexican culture, but it's a day that we like to celebrate because we like to eat tacos. So we we choose to celebrate. But um, we celebrate this because I think in America, of course, we like to eat tacos, but the original reason we celebrate Cinco de Mayo is because it's a story that resonates with us as Americans. It was a, a, an underdog story, a comeback story, if you will. So the Mexican president, who was a lawyer, Benito Juarez, uh, was, was in the city of Veracruz, and the, the French army was coming after them, and he drove them and the government out of the city. And so Juarez decided, "I'm not done fighting for my people and for my country." And so as they're pushed out of the city, he gathers together about 2,000 ragtag group of loyal men, and some were soldiers, some were not soldiers. And so these 2,000 men in Benito Juarez decided we're going to make a last stand, even if it costs us our lives, because we're not allowing another culture or another people to come in and take over our land and our country and what we know and what we stand for. And so you just imagine this 2,000 you know, men, ragtag group that probably didn't have any definition to their uh, military strategy, standing up against 6,000 soldiers who are well-trained in the French Army with all the artillery that, that was available in their day. And so you see this 2,000 uh, ragtag group against the 6,000, also supported by artillery, and nobody expects Juarez to have any kind of chance. Nobody expects him to do anything, maybe put up a fight to put up a good show that, you know, this is my last stand, this is my dignity this is my heritage and my legacy I'm gonna leave I died fighting for my people well they start at the beginning of the morning and he drags in this this Mexican man who was a a Texas born uh, citizen as well and he brings him on as the general and he leads this group of 2,000 men and they fight all throughout the day and over the course of the day the momentum starts to shift and starts to change and by the end of the evening this ragtag group of 2,000 men had pushed back the French army and defeated them at the battle of Puebla. And so nobody expected this to happen, and so we celebrate Cinco de Mayo because of that battle and because we like to eat tacos. Um, so, so one of the things, though, that we don't do really well as, as humans really throughout all of our history is we don't celebrate and honor other cultures well. We, we don't acknowledge people who are different than us unless it is to say that our culture is better than theirs, whether that's ethnically, whether that's culturally, economically, socially, it doesn't matter. We have a hard time and have consistently had a difficult time loving and accepting people who were different than us. We, we kind of move toward the place of separation and elitism instead of inclusion and unity. And that's something that we struggle with. We don't do a good job of acknowledging other cultures. And unfortunately, it's not just all of mankind. It's the people of God as well. That we are a people who have struggled with accepting and loving other cultures and other people. From the very beginning, the nation of Israel that God had formed, that he was going to use to send the message of hope to the world, decided that they were going to become separate and they were going to be elitist because God had chosen them instead of anybody else. And so in their mind, they get to the place of we must be the special people, the chosen ones. We're better than every other nation. We're better than every other culture. And so we're going to do everything we can to push everybody else aside and away from us. But that was never the intent for the people of Israel, and that was never the intent for the people of God. We of all people were supposed to be and designed to be and called to be people who would include and bring in and love and accept people from other backgrounds, ethnicities, and cultures. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. He said that there is no Jew nor Greek. Now in their day, that was the the main separation. That was the, the two parties, the two groups of people who did not get along and did not like one another. And so he says there's no longer this separation between the two. There's no slave nor free, no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And so he says there's not supposed to be a separation. There is no levels to culture or ethnicity that we are all human beings, that we're all of one race, the human race, that we all bleed the same, we love the same, we experience emotion the same, we all have a need for Christ, our Savior, just like every other human being that's ever walked the planet. And so today, I want to show us an incident that was kind of like the Battle of Puebla in a sense, that it was a symbolic victory for their people. The symbolic victory that started to change the mindset of the people of God, that that started to renew their thinking about who they were and who God was calling them to be. As we get to Acts chapter 8, the early church was starting to grow, it was starting to expand all across Jerusalem, which was the main city where they had their temple and they worshiped and the people of God existed. Now, this was starting to grow and starting to spread because Jesus had died on the cross, he had gone to the grave and he'd been resurrected and all the disciples and apostles had seen this or heard about this. And so everybody around town was starting to wonder about this Jesus who had predicted his coming, who had predicted his death and his own resurrection and actually fulfilled it. And so people around the city are starting to believe and the church is beginning to grow hand over fist and they're, they're seeing people all across the city get saved. Well, unfortunately... Those who were of the old establishment who said, no, this, is, this can't happen this way. It has to happen our way and nobody else can receive God and be a part of his kingdom except for us. Saul was one of the main leaders of this establishment and he was one who would say, no, you can't be in our group. You can't be in our club because you were born different than us. You don't have the same kind of money as us. You don't have the same kind of job as us. You don't look like us. Your skin's different from us. You speak differently from us. And so you can't get in. And so Saul and the old establishment Had this understanding and this idea that only my people could be accepted by God and only my people could be in this special group. And so, this old establishment decides that they're going to destroy anybody who identified with Jesus Christ, who said, The message is for all people, for anyone who would believe and trust. And so, Stephen, this young man, in Acts chapter 7, one of my favorite in all of history, Stephen, this young man, stands up against the old establishment and says, You're wrong. It's not that way anymore. You cannot exclude people just because of where they were born or what they look like or what they speak or what they used to believe in the past. And so he graciously walks them all the way through the Old Testament, saying that this was pointing to Jesus Christ who would come and accept all people. And they responded simply by stoning Stephen to death. They killed him because he spoke truth and they could not handle the truth because they did not want anybody else in their special group, which is what we as humankind and people and the people of God have struggled with for centuries upon centuries. But there that day, standing there watching Stephen get stoned to death and watching him die like Christ, like nobody else has died, just graciously giving his heart and his life to God and his complete life, the first martyr saying, I don't care if I die as long as I live for you. And this young man Saul was standing there watching him die this brutal death, hearing the words that he spoke, and they took the clothes off of Stephen and laid them at Saul's feet, and Saul approved of this stoning. And so Saul is emboldened by this death of Stephen and says, that's right, we're going to stand up for what we know. We're going to stand up for our group and nobody else can be included. And so he goes around ravaging the entire church, the followers of Jesus. He goes house to house, arresting anyone who I'd identify with Christ and would say that anybody can be included as long as you trust and believe in Jesus. And so he's going around pulling people literally out of houses, dragging them into the street, and this, causes a, uh, this persecution causes this scattering. Can you imagine somebody comes into your hometown and they're dragging people and killing people? There's going to be a lot of people running from Decatur. You're going to be headed everywhere and anywhere you can go to run away from the persecution. It's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 8 as we get to this point in verse 4. The people of God are running and scattering away from their hometown. <clears throat> in verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what he was saying and what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. And so here's Philip. And if you missed that, if you don't know history or you don't know um, ethnicity in this culture or you don't understand the Bible at all, here's what I want you to understand. And this may come across crude and I don't mean it to at all just to help you get a sense of of what is happening, this is like a, a, a white culture and a black culture in the deep south in the 1950s. They could not stand one another. Right or wrong, they could not stand each other. So here's Philip, who is a Jew. And these Samaritan people are different from him. And so Philip goes down to Samaria and he's scattered and sent out from his hometown. And as he goes, the Spirit of God sends him to Samaria to the place where no Jew ever thought the gospel would go, to the place that no Jew thought could be accepted or believe or trust or be included in the kingdom of God. Because these Samaritans were what they called half-breeds. They were half-Jew and half-Gentile. They had married into other cultures and the Israelite Jewish people could not stand them for degrading and disintegrating the heritage and culture they once had. They were ticked off that these people would include other cultures. And so the Jews and the Samaritans had nothing to do with one another. They had disdain for each other. They could not stand the other ethnicity and the other group of people. And so when Jesus comes along and he shares the parable or the story of the good Samaritan, this Samaritan man who is a half-breed, who is a nobody, according to the Jew, who wasn't worth anything, This good Samaritan is the hero of the story and helps the man laying on the side of the road when the good Jewish priest and a good Jewish man walks right on by and doesn't pay any attention. It seems completely implausible. For a Jew, there's no way a Samaritan can be good. There's no way they can be like that. There's no way the Samaritan would include or love or help someone else. That's our job. We are those people. So then when Jesus later in his ministry walks into town, And sits down at this well beside a woman whom a rabbi was not to be seen in public talking to by himself. The woman happened to be a Samaritan woman. And as his disciples come back, they stand from a distance and they wonder, Why is our rabbi, why is our teacher sitting down with this dirty, unclean Samaritan woman? How dare he? Jesus came to destroy the separation between Jew and Samaritan. Jesus came to destroy the separation between any culture, ethnicity, socioeconomic status that could not stand or get along with one another and could not have unity with each other. He came to bring and to break break that separation and bring this sense of unity. And so Jesus said, I have come so that all could have life. That the gospel crosses all cultures. It is for all people, for anyone, no matter where you have come from, what you believe, what you've been told, or what you look like. As long as you trust and believe in me and my work, anyone can be included in the kingdom of God. And so when Philip goes down to Samaria, he sees this separation start to fade because the people there in Samaria that no one thought would believe the gospel started to believe the message of Jesus Christ as he continues in verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news, the good news about the cross, that it goes across all cultures for all people, the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And so here are these people who nobody thought, no Jew thought would ever receive the gospel, would ever trust and believe and be included in their family or into the kingdom of God, hand over fist, every single one of them it seems is coming to faith and trusting and believing. Even Simon, and Simon was the town magician, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So it says that even this town magician, this, this man Simon, who had owned the town, they were enamored with him because of his magic tricks. He was the David Blaine of Samaria, and he was on all the shows and all the late-night TV, and everybody bought a ticket to go watch Simon. And they were under his control. He he had this persona and he had this gift to be able to perform signs and wonders and miracles that brought the people to his feet day after day after day. Now, Simon probably wasn't a guy who was doing this out of the goodness of his heart. He was probably performing these miracles and signs for people so that he could line his own pockets. He was making money off of the people coming and asking for signs and wonders. And so here comes Philip with the message of Jesus Christ, which has more power than Simon has in his magician ability. And Simon sees this power and this greatness and Simon says, I wanna believe too. I hear this message and I wanna believe as well. Now we're not 100% sure whether Simon fully repented, which means he changed his mind and changed his heart and truly followed Jesus because it seems like he only said, I wanna believe because I see the power of Jesus is greater than me and I wanna have that power so I can continue to make my name greater and line my pockets even deeper. But the point is, the message of the cross, the message of hope, this message of inclusion for anyone who would believe, had gone to Samaria, a place that no one thought possible. And maybe you're the very same way. I'm just gonna be wasting my time if I go there. My neighbor across the street, they're not gonna change. I've tried over and over and over again. Those people, their life won't be any different. I'll just be spinning my wheels. My cousin, You should see the way he acts every single family reunion. The Joker's not changing. God cannot do anything with him. And we think those people, whether it's a group of people or an individual or somebody at work or somebody on your kid's ball team or the parents who get kicked out of the ball field, I'd just be wasting my time. It is impossible, it is implausible that their life could be changed by the message of the cross. Look, here's the deal. It's not up to us to decide who believes. It's not up to us to decide who gets in the kingdom of God. It is simply up to us to go and to share the message of hope that crosses all cultures that anyone who trusts and believes and repents could have salvation. That is our call, and God sent Philip to go do that, not knowing whether the people of Samaria would believe because you got to believe that Philip's thinking, this is a waste of my time. I'm probably going to lose my head just coming down here. But Philip went. He was sent out by persecution, and he went to Samaria so that he could share the message of hope. So verse 14 and 25, we're gonna read these two together, and I don't want you to think I'm skipping verses because I wanna skip verses. There's something important in what happens in verse 14 and verse 25 that I think we need to understand for us today. So verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem, let's stop there, these apostles were men who were literally physically, directly, tangibly sent by Jesus Christ to go. And the reason we say we don't have apostles today is because Jesus doesn't stand in front of us and physically tell us, go. He tells us in his word that we're supposed to go. But these men who were apostles saw Jesus, saw his resurrection and stood in front of him. And he said, I want you to go as my witness to all the world and tell of the good news of me. These apostles we're still at Jerusalem. They were still sitting at home and Jesus said, go, of all people, you're the apostle, go. And they're like, no, we're good at Jerusalem. We're, we're fine, we'll just hang here. We, we like it here, it's comfortable here. We, we got a life set up for ourselves, this is easy. I know what I'm gonna do for my job. I know where my kids are gonna go to school. Look, this is easy, we're just gonna stay here because people are getting saved all around Jerusalem. And Jesus like, I didn't tell you to stay in Jerusalem, I told you to go to the end of the earth. You're supposed to go, that's your designation, your delegation, that's the whole point of your name, apostle, that you're one who is sent by Jesus Christ. And we're like, no, we're good. Until persecution happened. And until they saw Philip go and have some effectiveness in Samaria. And so when they heard that he was down in Samaria and that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, two of the main leaders in the church. And so finally, these men decide to go and they decide to be a part of the work that's happening that Jesus had already sent them to go and be a part of. And so in verse 25, after they'd been there and spent some time teaching and telling, they make their way back to Jerusalem. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Here's what I want you to understand. In that day, in that moment, what Philip did was not normal. It was not normal for him to go to other cultures and other people. Because the people of Israel were holding on to the message of God for themselves. We're just going to keep it right here. We're going to hold on to this. And his people had stayed in their part of the world, in their little bubble, willingly, unaware, and unchanged by the plight of their neighbor. Willingly. Somebody will take care of them. Completely unaware of what their neighbor down the street was going through. That they were living hopeless without Christ, living under the enamor and control of a magician who could not save their soul. And they'd placed all their hope in him because that's all they'd ever known. What Philip did was not normal. But it's exactly what you and I have been called to do. But it took persecution for the leaders of the church to go where they'd already been sent to go. It took them to literally be scared to death that they're gonna lose their own life to walk across the street, to get on a plane, to go down the hall to their coworker, to step across the field to another ball player's parents, to go the opposite, the locker opposite of theirs, and say, look, can I just share with you? Can I just tell you a little bit about what God's done for me? And and nobody's asking you to lay out the whole gospel in one conversation. You probably shouldn't. That's probably not wise most of the time. But just to walk across the street and say, hey, my name's Gabe. I'd love to take you to coffee sometime. I'd love to share with you just a little bit about my story because I was a wreck. I was a mess. See, sometimes we think persecution is, is bad. And we run from it because it scares us to death. But sometimes persecution brings about a disruption in our lives that causes us to see and think about things differently. Because we're just natural people who get into a state of not wanting things to change. We just get comfortable where we are. We get in this place of being sedentary. I've made a life for myself and I'm sure I'm doing some good things and I'm telling people sometimes about Jesus and I'm tweeting really cool Bible verses. The whole point of being an apostle was to go and it took persecution it took scattering and fear of their life for them to do what they actually had been sent and called to do. And this, this scattering and this sinning in chapter 8 was actually a fulfillment of what God had said through Christ in chapter 1. This is what Jesus said in chapter 1 verse 8. But you, talking to the disciples and the apostles, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witness in in Jerusalem. We're like, we got that, we got that down, we're good at that. We got Jerusalem nailed, like we got cornered on that. That's our market, that's our place, and we don't want to leave because we got it covered. And Jesus is like, no, no, not just Jerusalem, but I want you to go to Judea. Yeah, that's a little bit of a stretch, but he says, no, I want you to go to Samaria too. Ain't nobody going to Samaria, and no, ain't nobody going to Africa, ain't nobody going to the slums. Ain't nobody going across cross the street to that crazy neighbor. And not just Samaria, but I want you to go to the ends of the earth. This is your call and commission to go across cultures. I don't care if you're scared. I know you'll be scared. That's why I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. I know it's dangerous. That's why the Spirit is going before you and in you and with you along the way. You know the sad part? The time between chapter 1 and chapter 8... Was anywhere from three to five years, depending on the historian or commentator you read. It took three to five years for the men who saw Jesus resurrected, who said, Go, for them to actually go. And they still didn't do it in their own power. They still didn't do it because they chose to. They did it because of persecution and because they were fearful of their own lives. And finally, the message of the cross that crosses all cultures finally was going to other places than the people of God that it had been given to originally. And sometimes we need a disruption in our lives. Sometimes we need turmoil and tension. And we run from persecution like it's the worst thing we could ever experience. But sometimes God uses that disruption and persecution to drive us to go and do what we're already called and supposed to be doing. We know we are. We just like it at home because it's more comfortable. We know that's where we're supposed to go, what we're supposed to be doing. We know we're supposed to have that conversation. But it scares us to death to even consider walking across the street. But that's our delegation, that's, our, that's who we are, that's what we're designated to be. We are called disciples to go and make other disciples. That is the whole reason we're sent out is to help other people know the message of the cross that we have already been given and received ourselves. And we say, wow, well, that's so hard, that's so difficult for me. Look, it wasn't easy for the early Christians either. It wasn't easy for Philip either, it wasn't, it wasn't normal for them. But as Philip took this step, it starts to become his new normal. God says, okay, you did it one time, I'm gonna send you to go do it again and this is gonna become your way of life. So in verse 26. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and he went. And there was an, an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to worship in Jerusalem. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. So here's Philip, possibly the first apostle disciple to take the gospel outside of Jerusalem to another city that begins to believe and trust in him. And he is encouraged by the Holy Spirit. Don't miss that. This is the second time he's been encouraged by the Holy Spirit, which means he has to be in tune with the Spirit, listening to the Spirit of God, what he wants him to do, how he wants him to move and navigate his life. And he listens to the Spirit of God, and he's probably, now that he's gotten comfortable in Samaria, hey, I'm doing a good thing here, I'm reaching people, They're, they're receiving me, they're receiving the Word of God, and now God's like, I want you to go again. Because this is your life of going, it's not being sedentary and staying, it's a life of going and as you go, I want you to share this message of hope. So I want you to get up and out of Samaria where you've now made a life for yourself and I want you to go to a desert place It's going to be dry and hot and not a lot of fun. And as you go, you're going to meet this Ethiopian eunuch there, but I have something planned for you, I have something designed for you specifically for this man because he is searching for me and this timing is absolutely divine and perfect and I have planned every detail out for you, Philip. And the reason this is all planned out, we know that it's planned out, is because this Ethiopian eunuch had traveled to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the place where the the Jewish people would worship. They had a temple there where they would all meet, much like a a building like this, but a lot more ornate. And so here's this Ethiopian eunuch who was not a Jew. He was different. He was considered a Gentile, which is just not a Jew. He is obviously searching for God because he makes the trek from his hometown all the way to Jerusalem to worship God. Now, when he gets there, In that day and in that establishment, he is not accepted fully into the temple. There are different sections and different courts in which people are allowed. And the women were allowed on the outer side and the Gentiles. And then the Jewish men could come into the inner courts. And then the priests could go into the Holy of Holies. And so this Ethiopian man comes expecting to worship God fully only to be told, no, you got to stay out here. You can't come in all the way. We'll let you in a little bit, but you can't come in all the way. And so you just imagine this man searching for God, feeling left out. Man, I went to church and nobody talked to me. I went to this place where people are supposed to love you and include you and accept you, and they said hi to me, but nobody invited me to lunch or invited me to be a part of their group or anything of that nature. And so I was kind of brought in a little bit, held off at a distance. And so here's this man traveling back home, probably a little bit disappointed, still searching for God because he's reading the Old Testament He's reading the prophet Isaiah, and this is what it says in verse 29. And the spirit said to Philip, there he is again, the spirit's always present in our lives. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So he's from a distance and he sees this Ethiopian reading. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And the man said to him, how can I, how can I understand? I didn't grow up in your culture. I didn't grow up going to Sunday school. I don't know where the books of the Bible are. I didn't know there were two Johns. I didn't know there were two James. I didn't know there were two Josephs. I had no clue who anybody is or what anybody has to say or what the word of God means. I don't have a clue what it says. How am I supposed to know unless somebody sits down and talks to me? How will I know the message of the cross unless somebody guides me through? Because this is all Greek to me. I've never heard it. I can't understand it. I need somebody to show me what this means. Now, in the famous last words of every redneck, hey, watch this. (laughs) I want you to watch this, all right? So verse 32. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. This is what this Ethiopian was reading. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And in humiliation... Justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. So here's this Ethiopian eunuch that knows nothing about God or the the sacrificial system. Reading this about a lamb being slain and slaughtered has no idea what it means. But this is where the perfect timing of God comes in. Remember where he had just been. He had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And when he was at Jerusalem, outside the temple, at the temple he would have probably seen a high priest, which is the priest of the the highest order, take a lamb or a sheep that was spotless, that was unblemished, and he would watch this priest sacrifice this animal and take the blood and use it as a covering of sin for the people for a period of time. This man visually witnessed the sacrifice for the covering of sin but had no clue what it meant. And he's sitting in his chariot, reading about the sacrifice of a lamb who was to come, whose blood would cover the sin of the world for anyone who would believe. And he's like, I don't know unless somebody tells me. And so Philip shows up. And in verse 35, Philip opened his mouth. And in beginning with the scripture, beginning all in the Old Testament, he told him the good news about Jesus. He says, look, what you just saw at the temple, what God had been preparing for you ahead of time that you had no clue and I had no clue he was doing, come on, I mean, I got chill bumps. It's the second time I've preached this and about the 20th time I've studied it this week. Just what God had prepared visually for this man to see and then brought a human being along at the perfect time, the very moment he was open to hearing the message of Christ, was the very moment God put somebody in his life to explain it to him and guide him through it. And in verse 36, and as they were going along, they came to some water out in the middle of the desert. They just happened upon water. And the eunuch said, look, see, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? What's keeping me? I see it now. I believe it. God showed me visually, and you explained it to me, and here I am. I understand for the very first time the perfect timing of God with the willingness of man, divinely ordered by the Spirit, so that this man who was searching could believe and trust and understand that the cross was for him too. Come on, somebody. I know you're a bunch of white Southern Baptists, but come on. <laughs> right? I mean, just perfectly how God orchestrated and designed when we are willing to go, which is what we've been called to do. You don't have to go to Africa, although some of you probably need to (laughs) for a lot of reasons. You may just have to go across the street. You may just have to go down the hall. I, I tell you this, God will probably send you to the place you least thought he would send you or hoped he would send you. Because you need it more than maybe the people who you're going to need it. Because you need to see and realize that this life is not one that is of comfort, but is of going and sharing the message and the hope that God can receive anybody. All cultures, all people, all ethnicities, all socioeconomic backgrounds. As you and I are called to be the people who bring the message of hope. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 10. He says this about us and about the people we go to. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How could the eunuch, how could he believe if he'd never really heard? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? I don't mean standing up on a stage and beating the Bible. I just mean somebody telling who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. And how are they to preach unless they're sent? That's already been covered. We know we're sent. You don't have to ask. You have just, by the very nature of being a disciple, you have been sent. And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You don't have to wait on a sign from heaven. You already got it. You don't have to wait on a banner across the sky. You don't have to wait for some earth-shattering moment or movement or a feeling of emotion. You know, you already know that person you should go talk to. You already know that conversation. You already know that relationship. You already know the place you're supposed to go. But you're just holding on to it tight. I tell you this, too. As we talked about with Philip, I I want you to intently learn to listen to the Spirit of God because He will divinely, just as He did with Philip. He will divinely place you in somebody else's life that needs you in that moment. I'm, it doesn't happen to me all the time because I'm not any different than you, but when I listen, God speaks. It happened to me a week and a half ago. I was planning on coming back here from a meeting to work and God sent me to the hospital in Huntsville and when I showed up after some navigation, at the very moment, that family needed somebody to show up. At the very instant. I want to encourage you start to listen. If you don't know how to say, God, I just want you, I want to hear you. Start reading the Word. Start listening to Him. And He will begin slowly, not an earthquake, but He will slowly put in your heart, hey, I want you to call them. Hey, they need a text real quick. I want you to make some cookies and walk down the street. This message that we have, it's not just for us. It's for all cultures, all people all ethnicities, all backgrounds, all walks of life, whether we agree with it or not, whether we believe in what they're doing and we don't want to affirm their current stance or position, it doesn't matter. We can't change them, but God can. All we're called to do is love them by sharing them the hope of the cross because it is enough to save. I'm going to leave you with one more thing. The gospel crosses all cultures, every one of them, and you're not called to decide who gets to believe. You're just called to be the one to deliver the message to anyone and everyone you encounter. Don't be the old establishment. Don't be the people who say, I'm good in Jerusalem, I got it, I'm, I'm comfortable here. Sure, it's gonna cost you something. It's gonna cost some sacrifice, But don't let persecution, don't wait on persecution to cause you to go do what you're already called to do. But I'll tell you this, if you wait, it'll happen. I'm not trying to be a prophet, but it's coming. We will experience persecution. But don't let it take a major disruption to actually share the hope of the cross with somebody else. Let us be people who this becomes our normal way of life, of sharing the hope we have in Christ with anyone everyone. Let's pray. God, sometimes it's hard for us to break out of our everyday pattern of life. We just go through our routine, and our routines are busy because we've made them that way with some good things, some great things, and some things, honestly, that need to be cut away. But God, I pray that you would help us, that maybe today was some type of disruption that caused us to, to maybe start to think differently about who we are and what we're called to do and called to be, that maybe just break some of us out of our routine of just showing up to church every week, and maybe break some of us out of the thought process of, oh, well, God will send somebody else to do that or to go there, and Father, I pray that you would, you would convict our hearts simply. And that would be our disruption. That we would give and sacrifice our time to take the message of the cross, the power of the Spirit, to places we know you've already sent and called us to go. And God, we thank you for those divine moments that we know cannot be explained other than you. And so, Father, help us to listen intently to where you're calling us to go, but help us not to wait. Help us to be in the process of going until you call us somewhere different or to somebody other than where we already are. Father, if we say we love you, then you say we keep your commandments. And your commandment is that we would be a people who would be your witnesses to all peoples and all cultures in all the world. So help us to love you in that way. In Christ's name, amen.